Well, I'm excited to continue our series through the book of Acts. Um, We were on vacation last week, and so I got to watch uh, Brent's sermon. He did a great job, but he he said, man, I'd much rather be preaching up here than pulling a camper with three kids and a dog to West Texas. We went to uh, uh, Big Bend in the Davis Mountains. It was a good time. Everybody's asked me that today, like, what, what tragic things happen? Because it seems like every time we go somewhere, like, someone almost dies or something happens on our vacations. We actually had a really good trip. Nothing happened other than ripping the bumper off our camper. So really, to me, that's, like, minute compared to what usually happens on our vacations. So uh, very excited to be back and be going through the book of Acts. Uh, these last two weeks, we've gotten to hear from Tino and then from Brent. And here's what I love. Uh, the reason we've picked the book of Acts to kind of go through line by line is because what we're seeing in the first eight chapters is the beginning of the church. And if you think about it, we're a year and like two-month-old church. And so my, my thought as the pastor, and, and hopefully for you guys as well, is that we would come and we begin to go, what does the New Testament church look like? What does it do? What does it accomplish? And as we think about Wellspring, are we fulfilling this? Are we doing this well? And so what we've seen so far over these first five chapters is we've seen a few things. One, that there's this, this great mission of God to make his name known, to give himself glory by proclaiming the excellencies of Christ over all the world, right? That's the mission of the church. He's entrusted to you and I, not me, the professional paid pastor, but us as the church. He's called you and I to advance this kingdom through his mission. So that's the first purpose we've seen in the book of Acts. But the next one is this. If you'll remember in chapter 2, the Spirit of God came. Peter preaches this crazy message. Thousands of people come to Christ. And then it says they begin to commit themselves to worshiping together daily. And so also the church, part of our purpose is to come and to worship, to make God elevated on high in our hearts and our minds with our actions and our words to really use every bit of who we are to glorify him. The third thing we've seen that's a purpose is discipleship. In chapter 2 it said that they had committed themselves daily to the, to the apostles' teaching. And so there was this need for we want to know what you have learned from Jesus. We want to hear more about Christ and what he's called us to do. And the church is supposed to be about that. That we would be people that go, man, we are committed to the word of God. The fourth one was this, a place for prayer. If you remember, if you were here when Tino preached, talked about that, that John and Peter go before the council. They beat them. They're like, don't ever speak about Jesus again. And they're like, we can't stop thinking of speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. And they go immediately back to the church. And they begin to pray fervently that God would empower them and strengthen them and continue to give them favor to live their life for the glory of God. And then the last that we see, if you'll remember, is it's a place for care. A place to care for one another. In fact, it says that scripture says that they were coming together and that they were taking all that they had and they were kind of piling it together and they're going, we want to make sure that no one has need, that no one is without, that everybody has their needs satisfied. And so they were helping and loving one another. They had been so radically transformed by Jesus' love that they said, man, we're going to love one another in an extravagant way because we've been loved by Christ in an extravagant way. Now, here's my question. As I looked at these things, I I, want to ask you a question, and and we're probably going to raise hands. I wasn't, but we're going to raise hands because that'll be fun. Interactive. 
So here's the deal. One, I know that the church, look, we're all imperfect. <laughs> Pastors are imperfect. We're sinful. We mess up. We drop balls. And there's times and there's been seasons and there's been moments and stories I've heard about that like the, the church has kind of been like belligerently sinful and hateful towards people. So I'm not talking about that, okay? I want to like preface with that. We're not talking about moments where like the, the church literally just did you wrong as a person or a family. But, but we're talking about, hey, when you're in a good church that's trying their best to love the Lord, and they momentarily drop the ball on something. I want to know out of these five things, which one would have the greatest effect on you? Like which one would leave you going, man, that hurts, I'm a little disappointed. I don't know if I want to go back there. Okay, and so let's just use Wellspring as for instance. Like we love you, we love each other as best we can, we're not perfect, I'm going to fail you multiple times. But if one of these five things happened, I want you to decide which one of those would have the greatest impact on my life, all right? So the first is this. Let's just say uh, for the mission, like all of a sudden you're like, man, it seems like for the last several months, Matt's just been really internal focused and we're not thinking about outside and spreading the gospel. Would that be something if we did that momentarily for about three months that would have a negative effect on you? Or you come and there's a few weeks where you're just like, man, I'm just not feeling like that, that heart of worship, Austin's just not singing my favorite songs. You know, I don't know. But we're coming and you're like, I, I just feel like I haven't like experienced God in the worship. Would that have the greatest negative effect on you? Discipleship, you're just like, look, Matt has just been off. Like, he's preaching the word, but I just can't follow along with what's going on. Like, the teaching is just not up to par for me these last few weeks. Would that have the greatest effect? Or maybe you go, man, why are we not praying more? Why are we not a praying church? Would that have the greatest effect? Or in your time in need or in your family's time in need that your expectation for being cared for kind of got dropped and fell through the cracks? That would be the five options. And I just want to know. I'm, I'm interested in myself. So uh, if it's the mission, would you just raise your hand? If we got off mission for a couple months, you're like, I'm out. Okay? Y'all are super spiritual. Thank you. Uh, if it was worship, you're like, man, the worship, I don't know. I just hadn't been able to worship well. Would that be the greatest effect for you? Okay. What about uh, discipleship? You're like, Matt's teaching for the last month has not been great. Okay, so I see. that Y'all are the ones making me real nervous right now then. Thank you. Uh, a place of prayer, like I'm just not praying enough. We're not praying enough. Okay. And then lastly, if you were like, man, I had a need and you guys just didn't care for me. How many for y'all that would be? Okay. Some of you just like, I'm not participating. That's fine. That's okay. So here's what I thought. You know, I figured it would, it would be scattered, but for me, in ministry, the, the most times I've seen people that are like, you know what, like that church just isn't the place for me. Yes, like if they're not teaching good doctrine, they're not praying, they're not on a mission long term, I'm like, yes, get out of there. The moment I start preaching heresy, you just need to leave, Okay. But for most people, when you're in already a church you love and a Bible-believing church and that's doing the things the best they can, if we get skipped in our care, we're like, man, I don't know, that hurt. Like, you just didn't follow up on me like I thought you should. And really, here's what's interesting to me, all right? I've been in ministry for 20 years. And when I started, I started young, like 18 young. And so I've been on staff, and that's really when I started going to church all the time, too. It was like I fell in love with Jesus, kind of got in staff almost immediately. And so I've been a part of the church and going every Sunday forever. And all my churches have loved me and cared for me well. 
But as a young kid, you know, through my early 20s especially, like I just didn't have a whole lot of hard things that had happened in life. And the other thing was this. We lived in the same town where my family, my, my uh, wife's family lived, that I'd lived for like 15 years. So I had all these close friends. And there really wasn't a need for the care of the church. But can I tell you, the, when we took a job and I, I moved up to Flower Mound, we left our family, we, the place we grew up, all of our closest friends, and we went into a church all of a sudden. It was like, dude, we have no friends. We have no family nearby. Judah, our youngest, was like two weeks away from being born. We like literally move in. He pops out. We're like, what are we doing? We don't even know what's happening with our life. And in that moment, the church family and care for my family became really important. And praise God, that, that church came and brought us meals and prayed over our family, prayed over our kids, cared for us. And then as we entered into some hard times over the last five years, they were in our house, praying over our house and praying for us and watching our kids so Katie and I could deal with things that were going on. I mean, just amazing things. And since I've been here, it's kind of the same thing, right? Like we moved to plant this church, no nobody, and yet God rallies up people to love you and care for you. And what I've found that in the church... When the people of God love and care for one another, there's no more tangible way, I think, to grasp a hold of God's love and care for us. Like when people love you and care for you and walk with you, especially in the valley, we're like, man, you see the love of God manifest through his people. It's a beautiful thing and it's an important thing. And as we enter into Acts chapter 6, that's actually what's going on. Here's what I love about preaching through books of the Bible. I probably would have never picked this passage of scripture to, to teach on. And yet, God has a word for us this morning through Acts chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to Acts chapter 6. It'll be on the screen as well. But we're just going to look at the first seven verses today. And what we're really looking at is a moment where the church was struggling to care well for its people. And we want to see, man, what did they do? and how did, it, how did it affect change in their church and in their communities. And so with that being said, let's jump in. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now on these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we, we need to stop here so we know what's going on. We've read five chapters of Acts, and really what's gone on, it's about five years is estimated that has passed since the day of Pentecost. So the Spirit of God comes, the church explodes, Peter preaches, people get saved, they start meeting together, they're doing the thing. Now five years has gone on, and that has just continued to grow and grow and grow. And if you don't have a lot of Bible background, I want to help you picture this, okay? Like they're in Jerusalem. You've got the apostles or kind of the pastors of this church. So this is one church in one city that has just exploded. Thousands upon thousands of people coming to Christ, coming to be a part of this church. And you got 12 dudes trying their best to lead these people towards the Lord. And all of a sudden, this complaint comes because as they're growing, I mean, you know this, any organization, anything, anywhere, like the, the greater you grow, it's just the administrative and, and, and the needs grow greater, like, can I tell you the easiest thing I've ever done in ministry was be a pastor of a church that didn't exist for like two months. When I first lived, moved here, I was like, this is the easiest pastor job I've ever had because I don't even know anybody. But as we grow, right, all of a sudden, look, our, our database right now has 958 people that have given us voluntarily their information that have said in here, okay? That's a lot of people to try to keep up with, right? 
And so as we grow, all of a sudden these balls are being dropped in the Jerusalem church. And here's what happens. As they increased in number, you had Hellenist Jews. Those weren't like local to Jerusalem, okay? Those were Greek-influenced Jews had come now to Jerusalem, the holy city. They're with the Hebrew Jews. And they're going, look, man, you're, you're, you're dropping the ball with our widows. Now what does that even mean? Like what are they talking about? Well, the Hellenist widows that weren't from Jerusalem... It was said that when they got older in life, they just wanted to move to the holy city to die. They were like, man, that's, that's the holy city. That's where I want to be. That's where the presence of God and the temple is. So we're going to move here, and we're going to live here and die here, these widows. But here's what's amazing to me. The charity and the care and the love of the Jerusalem church was so powerful that these widows were moving in, and they were going, who are these Christians? Man, look at the way they love one another. Look, look at the way they love the people in need in their, in their city. And it was drawing these widows in, and they were becoming Christians. Like the extravagant charity and love and kindness and care of the church was so huge that literally people were like, I want to know that Jesus. I can remember I was in New York one time on a mission trip, and we went to a Sikh temple uh, Sikhs are the ones that they wear the turbans on their head. Uh, that's part of their religious practice. They have a temple that they go to. They don't really know who like their God is. In fact, they worship this big book like it's got a bed that it sleeps in at night. It's kind of crazy stuff. And they're just hoping and looking and seeking for an answer. One day I'll tell you more about Sikhs because it's incredible how close they are to knowing who Jesus is and yet so far off. But anyway, go to this Sikh temple. There's like three people in this thing in the middle of New York. But every single day, every day, they're downstairs, they feed the city. Anybody that's hungry, anybody that's in need, they provide a meal for anybody that walks in their door every single day. And I went down there with a bunch of rich college kids that I'd taken to New York, and they fed us, and they served us, and they loved on us. And I'm sitting there thinking about how crazy is it that you've got this religion that has nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the real God. And, and, and their motivation is like, hey, we better feed the city and do good deeds and maybe we'll go to paradise. So they've got a different motivation. But yet they're, they're, they're probably out, outstretching and outrunning and outpacing the Christian church in love and community by feeding their city. And I thought, man, like we've, we've experienced the greatest love there has ever been the greatest charity there has ever been, Christ dying for you and I, and yet we're being outpaced by other people that don't even know our God. We come to church and we go, man, it's kind of hard to love everybody at church. And so here you have the Jerusalem church doing this so well that people are literally getting saved because of their love for other people. That's incredible to me. And as a New Testament church, I'm like, man, how do we mirror that? Here's what I want to tell you, 1 John 4, 7 and 12, it'll be on the screen. Look, love for our brothers and sisters, love for others is always going to be birthed out of Christ in the gospel. And here's what 1 John 4, 7 through 12 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So this begins with this. Look, the ultimate expression of love was God's pursuit of you and I as sinful people bringing Christ to ransom us back. Like, that's the greatest amount of love that we can experience. And he says, if you really want to love to the fullest, 
I believe this. You want to love your spouse to the fullest. You want to love your kids to the fullest. You want to love your neighbors to the fullest. I believe first you have to experience the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so he says, if you love, it's because you know God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. You hear this all, all the time, right? Like, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. This is the scripture that shows us how God proved that he loved us. It was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sin. He's like, look, this wasn't birthed out of you you and I loving God. And he's like, you know what? Those guys love me so much and they're gonna go to hell without me. I better go down there and save them. He's like, we had nothing to do with him. We had no desire. We'd already made our choice that we wanted something other than Christ. And he's like, I love them too much to not provide a way back to me. And he comes and pursues us. This is how God has shown the ultimate love and proved the ultimate love. Verse 11 says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So scripture goes on to say, look, like you and I haven't seen God. Like we've never been face to face with God. And he's going, if you can love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, can you not also prove that love by loving your brothers? And let's just be real, church. Like the bigger we get, the harder that is. <laughs> because what happens is we get some people in here and you're like, they're a little quirky. They're a little weird. I don't know. It's hard for me to talk to. I don't think that about any of you guys. I'm saying that's what y'all think about each other. But I'm just saying, right, like we get in here and as we grow as a church, there's going to be people sitting in this room together, maybe that have offended each other at one time, right? It's, a, it's not a big town. It's not a big community. Maybe it's a place where you're like, I just really have never really liked that person a whole lot. And God goes, look, if you haven't seen me but you love me, how can you not also then love your brother that knows me and loves me? And so this is difficult, like it's difficult enough to love one another well. Like we're gonna do that to the best of our ability through the power of spirit, but it's gonna be broken. But then he goes, love your neighbor, which is really hard because, you know, my neighbors aren't weird, but yours may be, I don't know. But then, here's what's crazy. Jesus always takes it to the next level. Like I'm always like, why can't you just like, it was, like give us love in each other, let us work on that. And he's like, no, let me notch this up just a little bit for you. Matthew 5, 43 through 47 you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So someone was teaching that. Love your neighbor well, but if you got an enemy, it's okay to hate him. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that? He's literally like, look, what benefit? Like, how, are you, how do you feel good? At, like, I think sometimes he's like, you're puffing yourself up because you're, you're being really nice to your friends. <laughs> They're like, man, people that don't know Jesus do that. But what does it look like to love your enemy? What does it look like to pray for those that have persecuted you or hurt you or maybe said something about you that you didn't really like? What does it look like then? See, this is supernatural 
love that begins to display who Christ is. Praise God. Uh, Like, grasp this for a second. Praise God that Jesus wasn't like, okay, you know what? If they'll love me, then I'll come die for them. If they don't do anything to sin against me, then I'll come die for them. Then I'll save them. Because we would have been lost. But the Bible says while we were still his enemy, Christ died for us. Christ didn't ask us to do something he didn't do to the extreme. He goes, literally, people were my enemy, had nothing to do with me, hated God, hated the things of God, and yet I'm still going to come pursue you and lavish my love on you at Calvary. And so now go and do the same so that we, as the church, might be representatives of who he is. And this is what the Jerusalem church is doing to such a degree that these people are moving in from out of, out of country, out of state, whatever you want to think about it as, and they're literally getting saved by the love uh, that the church is showing. They are the hands and the feet of Christ, and they're going, I want to know this Jesus. And so he calls us as a New Testament church, yes, to love one another, to love our neighbor but also to love those that are really difficult to love that might even could be called our enemy because that's what Christ has done for you and I. And he continues on. That's verse one, huh? <laughs> I had to figure out how to make 30 minutes out of seven verses. No. Verse two. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So what they did is they go, hey, look, this, these people came up, they said, you're not meeting the needs of our widows. We've moved in, we've become believers, we're following your church, and our widows are being looked, uh, overlooked. What they would do is every single day, twice a day, they would go house to house to those who had a need, and they would give them either money that they needed or food, and probably because they spoke different languages, some of these ladies were just being overlooked. Maybe they didn't even speak the language to be able to go, hey, here is my need, I have a need. And so the Hellenists come up, and they're like, bro, you're missing it. We got all these ladies that you're just skipping when we give out food and money. What are you going to do about it? And here's how they answered. They, they summoned the entire church. I love that it says the full number of disciples. Like the church is made of disciples. You, if you know Jesus, are a disciple of Christ. We are the disciples. And it said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now that sounds super arrogant, right? Literally the apostles are like, we're not going to serve tables, we've got to preach the word. And I've seen pastors, preachers that will use this as kind of like, look, I don't need to do administrative stuff. I don't need to care and be in the hospitals because, look, i got to preach the word of God. There's a minute amount of truth to that. But the apostles were a little different than like me as a preacher, okay? They had walked with Jesus been at his crucifixion, seen him resurrect, and they were the only ones that knew that, and there was no scripture. Like, there's no Bible yet, New Testament Bible. So they they probably don't need to spend their time waiting tables since they are the Bible. They needed to preach. I'm not that. I, I can go serve a table, and you can read the Bible for yourself, okay? But there is a principle to the fact that the word of God is massively important. Scripture is massively important. That's part of why when we take time to teach on Sunday mornings, we're going line by line through books a lot of the time because we want to know what Scripture has to say, not what I have to say or someone else has to say. And so they said, listen, because we're the eyewitnesses of Christ, we've got to continue to preach the word and pray, and so we need someone else to help with this care. And here's where we get to, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among among you seven of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They sat before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. Here's what's happened. The church has gotten so big that it's outgrown the care of the apostles. And, and I think because we live in a consumeristic society, like we outsource everything that we don't want to do at this point, right? Like you can literally go purchase whatever you need or someone to do whatever you want, literally to go get your groceries if you want to go get your groceries, right? Uh, and so we outsource everything at this point. And, and sometimes we look at the church like that. And I go to Wellspring and I want to know what can I get from the preacher? What can my kids get back there? And that's pretty well all I want. I don't, I don't want to get my hands dirty. I want to be able to sit. They better have a seat for me. I don't want one of the black ones from the band hall because they make you sit weird. But I want a seat. I want my communion cup. And I'm going to go home. And I'm going to spend the rest of my day doing what I want to do. Like, there, there's, this is just like birthed in us. And so if we're not careful, what we begin to do is go, hey, look, I need you to care for me. And I need you to fix my needs or I'm out. Because there's another church right down the road that maybe they'll do it. But, but Christ has called us not to be consumers, but contributors. That we're supposed to come and go, man, what can I give of my giftings, my talents, my abilities for the glory of God and the good of others? And so that's what's happened. This church has gotten so big. It's like, look, we need the help of the people. And, and I'm just going to tell you, at this point for Wellspring, we're, we're at a place where we need more and more of the help of the people. Praise God. We have so many people that give of their time, their giftings, their abilities. Like, this would not happen without so many of you guys that already serve like crazy. But I'm, I'm talking about even specifically care. That idea of loving one another. Like, when you look to your left and you look to your right, we as the church are to care for one another. I will not be in every hospital room. I will not be in every single house when tragedy hits. I probably won't even know half the time that that's happened because we're just too big. I want to. I want you to reach out. Let me know if I can make it. I'm going to be there. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is we need one another to care and love for each other. Or what's going to happen is we all come as consumers and we go, why am I not being cared for? Why is Matt not doing what I want him to do for me? And we find ourselves in really a place where the Bible has set up a totally different dynamic for us, that we care for each other. And so they picked seven men of good repute that loved Jesus to go and to care for people. And these men began to serve and to love and to dedicate themselves to each other. And I believe that this is the beginning of really like what we structure in church to be as elders and deacons. Now, I know in our church we have so many backgrounds. You guys all come from, like, totally different denominations, which is amazing. And so these words carry with them different things. But here's what I need you to know about this this morning because we're going to continue to move towards this. We've been in an elder process since October of last year. Okay, and for us, what we mean as an elder, there's three words that the Bible teaches about an elder. That they're an elder, a pastor, or an overseer. All right, so when we talk about putting elders in place... These are men, the Bible says that the men are supposed to be elders that are qualified, that meet this list of qualifications that come and now serve you as your pastors. I'm hoping that in July, we're going to vote in a few elders, and I will no longer be 
the pastor. We will have pastors. That's necessary. That's biblical, and we'll talk a whole lot about that. But here's what I need you to know. There's five men right now that are meeting twice a month and, like, working hard to learn what does it mean to be an elder. They've gone through a strenuous application process, and here's what I can tell you about these five men. They love Jesus. They have great character. They meet the qualifications. We're just praying has God called them to be pastors of Wellspring, but there's gonna be a day where you can say, hey, we have pastors at Wellspring to help, but there's also deacons, and if you come from a like old school First Baptist, the deacons were the ones that ran the church, <laughs> Okay, they were the ones that were like the authority and did everything and told everybody what to do. It was this prestigious position. And look, that's not what the Bible teaches. And I come from a, a, a traditional First Baptist background. The Bible teaches that deacons are to be servant leaders. In fact, the deacons should be men and women. I believe the Bible teaches that there are deacons and deaconesses. And, and so part of what's happened here is they begin to set up the deacon process. These people that are going to be in hospitals that are gonna be in homes, that are gonna distribute food to people in need, that are gonna care about the needs of people and devote themselves to that. And one of the things I want you to be praying about in this room today is, man, it, it, is at some level maybe God calling you to think about that. I hope to put elders in place and then we're gonna start the process of deacons. And maybe he's calling you to be a part of this servant care for the church. I want you to read this with me just for a moment. First Timothy 3, eight through 13. These are the qualifications for a deacon. And when we get into the summer, I'm going to teach this a lot uh, and a lot thorough or more thorough. But for today's time, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 says this. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them all be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, I think that and we'll talk more about this later, I think that you could say this as their wives or women. Women likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so here's, here's what the Bible said. Right? He's like, I want you to go pick seven men. Here's a couple criteria. Well, the Bible's given us criteria for, decide, for deacons and deaconesses, and here they are. And the quick and fast is be self-controlled in speech, appetite, and actions. Be sound in faith, tested for service. If married, be faithful to your spouse. If single, honor Christ with your body and manage the chi- your, your children and your household well. These are the qualifications for a deacon that we hope to set up because as we grow, we need more men and women that say, I am committed, above committed to help care for the people of Wellspring. We, we don't want anybody to ever feel like they weren't cared for, that they were missed or, or looked over. And so we wanna be people that do that. Really the only difference in the qualifications between a deacon and an elder is elders, it's, it, there's two more qualifications, able to teach, So they're kind of like the guardians of the doctrine that we preach at this church, and they have the gift of leadership. And so that's that's kind of the difference between the two. You've got elders who are kind of ruling and leading and helping and setting vision and teaching. You've got deacons and deaconesses that are serving and caring so that everybody feels that tangible love of Jesus. And that's what's happened in this scripture. And here's how it ends. Listen, this is how I close. Verse 7, they set this up. This is why setting the church up the way the Bible tells us, the way the New Testament looks like, is so vitally important. 
I, I know for some of you, you're going, man, I'm not getting like inspiration for today, Matt. I want something for me for today. But look, we got to know how the church operates and runs in the New Testament or we're going to miss the mark. God wants us to walk in the fullness of how the church is supposed to look. And here's what happens when a church does that. Verse 7, after they had set everything in motion, the church said, yes, we want these seven men. They start serving and caring, and the apostles continue to preach and to teach and to pray. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. Listen, when you set up the church according to the way Scripture says, and the people of God if you were here when Tino, he started his message by saying, I want you to tell me who is the church. And everybody was like, we're the church. And he said, say, we are the church. Like, we are the church. We don't outsource this. This doesn't go to me as the pastor or our staff members. It goes to us, the people of God, saved by Christ. And it says, when we function correctly and you use your gifts to do more than just be a consumer, to come and to take in and to leave, but you go, I'm in. Like Christ has so transformed me and he's changed my life and I've experienced real love that I want to shower that on people. I want to use everything I've got for you, Lord, and your people and the people of the city of my church. The word goes out and the kingdom is multiplied. Like care in the church leads to the mission of the church. And he needs us to do that, church. He needs us to be committed to what's happening here. Like, if God's called you here, and you're like, yes, this is, this is my people, my church, my home, he's got more for you than just being a consumer. He's got more for you than just coming and listening and leaving. And he's gifted you and he's equipped you by the power of God to do things for his glory. And can I tell you, it's sacrificial, it's hard. It means you're going to have to sacrifice some other things. But can I tell you, when, you, when you're doing the things that God has equipped you for, the things that God has called you to, you will find no more abundant life and joy than serving him and serving his people. There's nothing greater than giving your life to the glory of God. And so here's my prayer as we end today. I, I want us to ask a real question of ourselves. And this is tough, Right? The people that you interact with on a weekly basis, what would they say about how you love others? Like what would they say about what you really care about and where your mind really is? What would the people in your community group, if you go to community group here, say about, man, these people, this is, this is what they love and are committed to. Because God longs to show his love through you and I in such a radical way that people are literally saved by it that the church would expand by how you live your life and love others. That's difficult, church. It's hard. It's hard for me. We get our minds focused on so many things that we're trying to do as individuals that sometimes that part is hard. It's hard enough to love everybody in this room, much less our enemy. But I want us to be a people that begin to pray, God, would you help us to be full of the spirit and love because you have lavished perfect love on us. We want to be so charitable and kind to others that it leads them to repentance and salvation. That's huge, man. And I believe God wants to do that in us. And I believe you want to be a people that do that. Uh, every, every new person that walks in this door, for the most part, comes to me and is like, man, it's just, I feel so warmly welcome and greeted here. Like, there's a hospitality and a love, but I want us to go more than just a Sunday morning high five. Like, I want us to go into each other's lives. 
which, is, which means you're going to have to be in people's lives. That's why the community groups for us is probably the greatest way you can be involved in, in this type of intentional community. Where there's a handful of people that know you and you know them. And they're praying for you and they're walking with you. And when things get hard, they know about it. It's a big deal and it's needed. God wants to love and shower his care for you through the people of God. But you've got to allow them to do that as well. And here's my final statement and we'll pray. As I was writing this sermon, I did think about those of you that may walk in this room and have church hurt. Like some of you may have like legitimate church hurt. Like the church really did you wrong. And that's tough. And, I, and one, I'm sorry. Um, there will be a day probably where we'll be like, man, Wellspring hurt us at some level. We don't want to. But it'll happen because we're broken and we're sinful. And so here's what I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to encourage you. I've been praying for you specifically. Uh, one, that you would just be full of grace and mercy and kindness. That you could extend forgiveness to those that have wronged you. And then also as you're here at this church that you would go, I want to be a part of the solution that that doesn't happen again. Like I wasn't cared for the way I felt like I needed to be. And so why don't then you begin to be someone that cares for others the way you thought you should have been cared for. And allow the Lord to, to produce forgiveness in, 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 in your heart to set you free from church hurt. Because that's hard, man. This is a messy thing, but God's good. And he redeems all things. And he's called us together as brothers and sisters to love each other well for his glory and his mission. Let's pray together. So God, I thank you for Acts chapter 6. Um, something that probably uh, we would have just read over quickly and not thought a whole lot about. And yet there's some really deep richness in that. God, I thank you that in Christ, that if we've placed our faith, hope, and trust in you, that we have experienced the ultimate sign of love. And so, God, we want to be people that, that resemble you, that are your hands and feet, that do care for our brothers and sisters, that don't have our minds and our hearts set on so many things other than you that we miss opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so it's hard, Lord. <laughs> We're a selfish people. We're a busy people. We're a fearful people. And so we need your spirit, just as you empowered these apostles and disciples to do uh, and to love one another in supernatural ways, God. We need you to do that in us. And so I also pray for the person in here that does have church hurt. God, I pray that you would bring some healing today. God, I pray for those that don't know you to know that there is an opportunity to experience joy and love like they've never, ever experienced in Christ. So we thank you for saving us and giving us the church. We thank you that you structured it because you care for us. And I pray that we would continue to be a church that represents the purposes of your people. And so we give you this time to respond. God, would you move in our hearts and our minds? And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.